We're still doing Psalm 23 all summer. We're digging deep into this Psalm, and we're gonna be in Psalm 23, verse three, but just the first part of verse three. So if you're visiting with us for the first time, our entire summer series is in this Psalm, and each week we're just chipping away at it, week by week, until our fall series starts. So I'm gonna read the whole Psalm uh, just so the context is in our minds, and then we're gonna land the plane here at the first half of 23. Uh-oh, Siri. She's, yeah. Here we go. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's where we're gonna stay at this morning. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The New York Times called it the worst art restoration project of all times. A very famous Spanish art blog called it the restoration that turned into destruction. The BBC said this, the delicate brushstrokes of the once dignified portrait now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey man in an ill-fitting tunic. What these resources are describing is the mural painted by uh, Elias Garcia Martinez. He painted this mural in 1930. It was beautiful when he created it. Over time, moisture got to the painting. The painting started to deteriorate and the colors were fading. So naturally, when you see something falling apart, you think something's gotta be done. We've got to fix this thing, right? Well, this is precisely what Cecilia Jimenez was thinking. She was ravenously following this line of logic. She saw this deteriorating painting, and with no art background, with no ability to fix these paintings in and of themselves, and with the steady hand of an 80-year-old, Cecilia got to work. She, Tim, the tool man, tailored this thing and got to work. What would have taken art restoration experts well over a year to complete, Cecilia finished it in less than three hours. Let's see her work. You can imagine Cecilia seeing this photo on the left and its deterioration in the middle and seeing something needed to be done, but look what Cecilia did. This once beautiful painting, she turned it in. You can see a monkey man in that photo. I pray that that photo never leaves your imagination. The town council, locals, tourists that would come to see this painting were absolutely horrified, absolutely horrified by the work and the damage that she did. The town council paid tons of money to bring in art restoration experts to try and fix this. But Cecilia 
uh, damage this mural beyond repair. The art restoration experts looked at it and said the oils that Cecilia used to repair the painting fused with the original oils of the artwork and any sort of uh, restoration effort would just delete the mural from the wall itself. Now we're left with, do we leave the monkey man on the wall or do we just paint over it all together? What do we do at this point? You can imagine Cecilia having her to-do list and coming to this painting with her tool belt on, knocking this art project out, checking the box off and saying, what else is there to fix? And the same is true of all of us. Because of our sin, because of the effects of our sin, our souls are beyond the ability to repair in and of ourselves. We cannot restore our souls to sinless perfection, nor is our relationship with God one of a self-help to-do project. We need an expert to come and restore us. And thankfully, David tells us exactly who the master restorer is of our souls. And that's the Lord, our God himself. Only he is able to reverse the damage of sin. And this helps us to ask the question, well, what does God's restoration look like? What does God's restoration look like? We're gonna answer this in two ways. He saves and he sustains. He saves and he sustains. Let's see how God saves. Let's look at verse three again. He restores my soul. Four words, powerful, packed with all kinds of imagery for us. These are a found, this is a foundational truth for our lives. And uh, last week, David was using the illustration of a, a shepherd of sheep with his flock with him. And, and this illustration continues into this week. What David is referring to is the constant life-saving measures that the shepherd must perform for his flock regularly. Now, last week we talked about it's really hard for sheep to be able to lie down and rest, but the danger isn't over when they actually lie down and rest. They are still in danger, not necessarily from predators at this point, but from themselves. You see, sheep are fat, they're fluffy, and before they're sheared, uh, what they like to do is when they're ready to rest, they'll look for uh, kind of uh, indentions in the ground. And what happens is they'll, they'll get their little fat bodies and they'll lay in these indentions. And what happens is it kind of supports them and holds them. But what happens is oftentimes these sheep start to stretch out and they get real comfy cozy. And what happens is their little fat bodies lift their little itty bitty hooves off the ground and they start to kick and start to frantic panic and they start to go because they can't touch the ground anymore. Because they start to feel unsafe, they're unable to flip their little fat bodies back over so they just frantically go, go, go. And what happens is instead of getting back on their feet, it pushes them further onto their backs. And this is actually deadly for sheep because what happens is when they're on their backs, the gases in the sheep will grow and it'll eventually suffocate and kill the sheep unless the shepherd actually physically 
goes and grabs them and flips them over. David is teaching that this is precisely what God must do to save us from spiritual death and for the consequences that our sins have earned. David is very clear here in four words, he restores. He restores, meaning God is the only mover. God is the primary mover who restores us. God is the only one who can save us. But notice the second half, God, he restores my soul. God's restoration is very personal for you. God knows exactly what every single one of you need to be saved, and all of us are very unique. All of us all struggle with sin, but it works out in very unique ways. God knows exactly what you need to be saved. This is why at East, we put a high premium on people's testimonies. It's not because we care about how exciting the testimony is or how boring the testimony is. It's encouraging to the church to hear how God has individually left his throne in heaven in Jesus and moved heaven and earth to come and restore sinners to salvation. It's a beautiful story. It's encouraging for all of us. But sadly, our sin has us figuratively on our backs kicking frantically, panicking, trying to figure out ways into which that we can make things right again. When we experience sin, what happens is we are like the sheep on our back, kicking, being bloated more and more with the gases of pride and self-righteousness, blame-shifting, moving away from our own failures and seeking to put it on others. These things work out like this. I'm a pretty good person. Uh, they misunderstood me. I didn't do this. Well, I don't really need a savior. I don't get this whole church thing. I'm not that bad. We use the red herring of, well, at least I'm not Hitler. I don't do these things. I'm a nice person. I'm, I'm charitable. You can feel the gases just expanding and, span and expanding. I don't need God is essentially the root of that argument. Paul very directly says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So you weren't a pretty good person. You're not able to fix yourselves. You're not just really wounded. He says you're dead here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So just like this good shepherd who knows his flock intimately, he knows them by name, he came and restored you, not to a better version of yourself, but into a new creation with a new mind, with new emotions, with new motivations, with a new will that allows you to respond to God's outpouring of love through Jesus, through the means of faith. You see, God gives us the ability to have faith. You see, your soul's restoration is only possible because Jesus came to earth on a rescue mission for you. He died on the cross for your sins. 
in the place of your punishment. And on the cross, he accepts all of your sins. Our sins are applied to him on the cross, and at the point of faith, what's applied to us is his sinless perfection. God credits you as sinless, and Jesus is sinful. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What this is saying is at the point where you put your faith in Jesus, you were at one time forever forgiven. And you were no longer seen as a sinner, but a saint by God. When's the last time you looked in the mirror and said, you're a saint? Very, very, yeah, never and very rarely. But this is what the Bible teaches with the phrase justification. At the point of faith in Jesus, you are credited righteous before God as though you had never sinned. You were made new from the inside out. And being made new is exactly what Ben and Jackie Belknap noticed one evening as they were looking for a very important envelope. One evening they had put their son Leo to bed. He was two years old and uh, they had been saving up money for whatever kind of vacation purchase they were going to make. And they noticed they couldn't find this envelope. The envelope had well over $1,000 in it. So like the sheep, they just started frantically going with their little feet. They were all over the house like a frantic tornado, destroying the house, trying to find where this envelope went. Well, little did they know, little Leo had been doing some shredding. And not shredding the gnar, like my surfer friends would call it. He was shredding documents. He had watched Ben and Jackie operate the paper shredder, and one day he kind of snuck away, found this very important envelope, and stuck the envelope full of cash into the paper shredder and destroyed it into a billion little pieces. And as Jackie and Ben were tearing the house up to try to find it, the last place they looked was in the paper shredder. There at the bottom sat all this money in this envelope. Jackie said she had a mixture of laughing and crying all in the same moment. Luckily though, there was a solution. Uh, the government has what's called the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and they have a division called the Mutilated Currency Division. And it's here where they take destroyed currency. They take uh, burned, rodent-chewed, and deteriorated currency, and they either restore it, uh, and if they can't restore it, then they just redeem the owners of that money. The Bureau told Jackie and Ben to send the money to them in a Ziploc bag, and they would return to them the new currency. They touted it as a free service, but we all know uh, nothing's free with the government. So the price, however, was transferred to the taxpayers, but not to the owners of this money. But this is a phenomenal service, so remember this if your money's ever destroyed. I had no idea this existed, but it's an even better depiction of the work of Christ for us. You see, our sin leaves us absolutely destroyed. Imagine if Ben and Jackie tried to take all this money and all these little squares and glue it back together. Imagine they could actually do it and then try to turn it in to receive goods and services from somebody. I would not accept that currency. That currency would be absolutely rejected. 
But what Christ does for sinners in our mutilated lives and souls because of our sins, he is essentially the mutilated soul division for us. In him, we bring our sin and the destruction that it's caused. And through faith, he doesn't just repair us. He makes us new. And it's a free service to us, but nothing's really free. It costs Jesus everything. It cost him his entire life for us. But what we freely receive through faith is a new heart and new affections, and we are restored from the inside out. This causes us to ask, where are you this morning? If you don't know where you stand with Jesus, this is the best place for you to be. This is not a time to feel condemned, but a time to feel relieved. This is a time where you can come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and find yourself completely saved from all of your sins, to be perfectly justified. Are you restored? Has Christ made you new by his spirit? Learn from these sheep that you can't save yourself. Learn from Cecilia that you can't repair your own image. It will just leave you looking like the monkey monstrosity. Learn from the destroyed currency that you can't piece your life back together. You can't fix your own soul. You can't do, you can't give, you can't serve, you cannot work your way into justification. You can't make God accept you as righteousness. The only way that you can be credited, accepted, loved, repaired, and restored is through trusting in the resurrected Jesus who loved you enough to die in your place and to rise again. So we've asked, what does God's restoration look like? Well, first we saw that we, he saves, but next we're gonna look at God's sustaining work. So God saves and he sustains. So as we think back to the shepherd caring for these flailing sheep, we need to remember that this is a constant exercise for the shepherd. The sheep are constantly getting themselves into predicaments and the shepherd is always needing to come to their rescue. It's very similar to a whack-a-mole game in an arcade. If y'all played that, you smash one down, others pop up. It's a constant game of smashing uh, and putting out fires all the time. Take care of one problem and another one pops up. How wonderful would it be if the sheep would just learn from their mistakes? How wonderful would it be if the sheep would just stop doing that thing? Stop laying down. Remember how fat you are. Stop eating so much and stop getting yourself into this trouble. How nice would that be? Well, this illustration is how God relates to the church. And the church is not this building. The church is made up of all of us. We are the sheep in this metaphor. You would think that once we experience the joy of salvation, you would think that once we understand Christ giving his entire life for us would cause us to never sin again. You would think that we would become perfect. And sadly, I was preaching a sermon one time at a previous church, 
And I said, who in here this morning hasn't sinned? It was very rhetorical. And this little nice old lady raised her hand in the back. And this stuff happens to me all the time in the middle of sermons. Like somebody will like yell out something that's super distracting. A crow will hit a window. And I just didn't really know what to say. I was like, hey, let's talk uh, after this in the service. She really thought that after being saved, she didn't sin any longer. She thought that, I mean, she really understood this. And it was very, a very innocent thing. She wasn't trying to be rude. But Christians still struggle with sin after becoming Christians, Right? We often get called hypocrites. That's because we are. We sin all the time. We tell people a gospel much better than we live. That is hypocrisy. The great thing to say to that affront is, yeah, if you knew my heart, you would know I'm way worse than that. We don't have to hide behind our good works. We hide behind Jesus's. Christians still struggle with sin. And as Christ is our shepherd, he constantly sustains us when we get ourselves into trouble, when we find ourselves on our back spiritually, unable to work ourselves out of anything, God comes and he restores us. When we fail, Christ restores us over and over again. Take Peter, for example, in Matthew's gospel. Jesus was meeting with his disciples right before he was about to be crucified and he tells them that he's going to be captured and all of his best friends are going to abandon him. What does Peter do? Peter, in his excitement, he tells Jesus, never would I do such a thing. Never. I'm your ride or die, Jesus. I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna die with you if it needs to happen. Let's go, Jesus. And Jesus just, man, you can just feel him just hearing Peter being like, oh boy. Boy, if you only knew. Jesus' words came true. Jesus told Peter, he said, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. Deny me. So Jesus, just like he said, is captured. He's arrested. He's on trial. He's getting slapped, mocked. This trial is illegal, by the way. And all the meanwhile, he's there by himself. Peter's nowhere to be found except in the courtyard, hanging out by the fire with his hood on, trying to just sneak around, being inconspicuous. One of the girls sees him in the courtyard and she says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus's followers? And Peter, strike one, says, no, I don't know. You know that dumb face when you get caught doing something? Don't act like that dumb face. When you get caught, uh, uh, I didn't say it. More girls see him. They're like, hey, aren't you, aren't you that disciple of Jesus? Yeah, 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 I'm pretty sure I saw you with him. Peter gets more upset, more loud, more frantic. His little sheep feet going, more frantic. Says, I don't know the man, I don't know him. And then finally, a few minutes later, some of the others hearing his loud speech, hear his redneck accent, and they're like, hey, your accent gives you away. I know you're with Jesus. And then he gets really upset he starts cursing, bringing curses down on himself and using foul language saying, I don't know the man. I mean, I wish I had time to preach on just that, but this is a heinous affront to Jesus, calling a man when he knew he was God on earth. What this scene is is a prime example of the relationship that we have with Jesus even after trusting him. 
Even after being in a loving relationship with Jesus, we can find ourselves in situations, and in those situations, we've got the prime opportunity to do and say some very horrible and sinful non-Christian things. For example, think back to our new member vows. What situations do you find yourself in that uh, self-control fades away and sinful communication rises to the surface? Let's take gossip. What situation causes gossip to come out of your heart? There's always a root cause of this stuff. It might be jealousy. You might be in a friend group and somebody says, man, look how great such and such is. Look how hard they've worked for this. Look how great her kids is or her spouse or his accomplishments, whatever. And in your jealousy, you say, well, if you knew who he really was, you wouldn't think he was so great. You wouldn't think she was so great. Yeah, those lashes are fake, but hold up, what's happening? And you use those opportunities to share some private information about someone you once care about but you're just eaten up with jealousy about. Maybe it's anger over the way you've been treated. You're sitting around the cooler. You're sitting in the bullpen. You're sitting um, maybe uh, at the teacher's lounge. I was a former teacher. And leadership does and says something that you disagree with and somebody just lobs the bomb out there. And just instead of keeping your mouth closed and walking away, use this as an opportunity to say, yeah, well, you should have heard what she said about you. Yeah, you should have heard what they said about you. It feels good in that moment to let that sinful rage out. And all the meanwhile, you're just absolutely destroying someone's character. But let's not camp out on gossip. Gossip's heinous, but it's really easy to go there as a pastor. I always try to find like really like nuanced illustrations. Take grumbling. When's the last time y'all have heard somebody talk about grumbling? Philippians 2.14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling. It's not a suggestion. This is three fingers at me right here. I'm a grumbler, y'all. I grumble easy. What grumbling does is it highlights the heart's discontentment. And what discontentment is, uh, discontentment exists with the root of failing to acknowledge the bounty of blessings that God has lavished us with, not just externally, but internally. You see, our tongues are a very small part of our body that regularly lets out some of the most damaging things and words and phrases that we can ever have. You see, for the Christians, we exist in this world where our tongues can be a source of life-giving water but also a torch of absolute evil where hellfire can literally come out of our mouths and absolutely destroy people. Many of us still today battle with words and phrases and arguments and things that teachers and coaches and parents and friends have said about us. We are a people who are constantly hurt and constantly hurt other people primarily through our tongues. Because we know this about ourselves, we need that Savior to constantly pick us up out of our bloated, gaseous gossip and make things right again. Because we still battle with this after becoming Christians, we need Jesus to keep a tight rein on our tongues, to dwell in us by his Spirit, 
and to bring us to repentance when we fail. Repentance means turning from your sin, turning to Christ and new obedience. For Christians, if you claim to be a Christian, your life should be marked by this regular cycle of faith and repentance. It's kind of, it's kind of a cycle that happens in our lives. And you have trusting in Jesus, then you have sinning, then you have repenting and turning from your sin, asking for forgiveness, making things right with people that you've hurt, and then turning back to Jesus in new obedience and faith. This cycle is ongoing. It's moving somewhere. It has its ups and downs. But if you're a Christian, your life is marked by this. It's slow. It's tedious. It's painful. But what God is doing is chipping away at all those horrible places that dwell inside of us. He's applying healing and how he meets you there. And over time, you start to look and act and smell more and more like Jesus. This ongoing and never-ending process is what the Bible calls sanctification, to be sanctified. It's an ongoing work of God in your life to make you look more and more like Jesus. And for Peter, he experienced this sanctification process. He experienced this restoration. John, in his gospel in chapter 21, tells us that after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he had taken care of some business, and then he went and sought out Peter. Peter had denied Jesus three times exactly how Jesus said he was going to do, and he sought Peter out and allowed him to repair and repent. What did he do to Peter? He goes up to Peter and three times he says, Peter, do you love me? And for the trifold destruction of the relationship, he allowed Peter to repent and said, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Jesus restored Peter and he restored the brokenness in their relationship that Peter's sin caused. And brokenness is what results in sinful relationships apart from the healing balm of Jesus. A missionary was serving in the Philippines and he went to the silversmith school and watched these, uh, these people get trained in creating silver artifacts. And uh, like any good place you visit, you always exit through the gift shop. And as he's exiting, he buys this little silver money clip and it had a very intricate, very unique design. He took that and used that silver money clip daily, and after 24 years, the clip finally gave out and broke. Missionary was still serving in the Philippines. He goes back to the school. 24 years had passed. Where had happened in this little clip? And the person who greeted him uh, at the, the front desk, whatever you want to call it, he goes and he hands him this clip. He says, I've broken it. The guy behind the counter takes the clip, he examines it, and he says, I designed this clip. I'm the only one who ever made this design and these particular artifacts. I made all of these that were ever made. So the missionary very happily says, well, can you fix it? The man replies to him, he said, I designed it. I made it. Of course I can fix it. The same is true of every single one of us here this morning. God designed you, he made you, and he is the only one who's able to save you and sustain you. 
You cannot do this on your own, nor are you too far gone, nor are you too broken, no, nor have you done something that God can't work inside of you and repair. Your sins, no matter what you've done, can never outsend the blood and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't care what it is. Jesus on the cross dying says it is finished. The work for your salvation is completed in him. He is the only one who can save and sustain. It might be for the first time ever this morning you're trusting in Jesus for salvation. His death on your behalf will last you the rest of your life into eternity. Maybe you're here this morning, you've been a Christian for 50 years and you've repented for the 50 billionth time. His grace is good enough for you as well. His healing, his forgiveness, his love is what saves and sustains a sinful, broken people. Turn to him. Trust in him. He's the only one who can do it because he's always there. Let's pray. Oh, before we pray real quick, I'm gonna go ahead and invite uh, the ushers up. Because we're doing communion, I'm gonna go ahead and invite them up. I'm gonna pray for the offering and for the sermon um, in kind of a one lump sum because we've got kids and our volunteers are managing all our beautiful children. So let me pray. Father, our sins are too heavy to bear on our own. Lord, the freedom that you provide for sinners, for the guilt, the shame, the fear uh, that we've experienced in our lives, Lord, is uh, the freedom that you provide from that is absolutely amazing. This is why we sing songs. This is why we rejoice. This is why we sing of your love. This is why we're so compelled to tell others about your love is because of the mighty work that you've done for us. Lord, help us to not see ourselves and our lives as a self-help project, but Lord, help us to see our lives that, uh, lives that have been helped and transformed by your life, death, and resurrection. Help us live out of that identity. Help us live out of the identity that uh, we are so sinful and so broken, it took you to come and die for us and you love us perfectly. Let us live out of that identity. Let that move us to restore relationships that may have been broken by our own sin. May it help us to forgive and love others who have hurt us. God, give us the grace to trust and love you. Help us to sing your praises. And thank you, Father, for the ability to give back to you, not just in monetary form, Lord, but with our talents, with our uh, gifts that you've given us, Lord. Let us use them lavishly for your fame and glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.